Jay, why do people keep working with Sabretooth? I mean, I know it's superheroes, and they can't just throw him in a hole and forget about him. At least not till Krakoa. Oh, right, but they keep putting him on superhero teams, and it never, ever ends well. Hope springs eternal, I guess? Memories are short? Seriously, though, how many times has he been on the X-Men? Or other X-Teams? I mean, I get not wanting to turn him over to the human authorities, but there's a lot of space between that and measuring him for a costume. No, I agree completely. It's, it's ridiculous. Maybe it's a mutant solidarity thing? You don't see him turning up on the Avengers. Actually... Sabretooth was an Avenger. Twice. WHAT?! I'm Jay Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 321 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And in this case, the ins and outs are the ins and outs of claws cutting through, I don't know, people, because this is a Sabretooth episode. I was gonna say, the ins and outs are a little more literal this week, in a number of ways. Very true. So yeah, if you've been listening to the podcast for a while, you will remember that one of the continuing plot lines for really quite a while, since before the Age of Apocalypse, was Sabretooth being a prisoner in the X-Mansion and Professor Xavier trying to rehabilitate him to make him less, you know, evil. Sabretooth, as you may also recall, is responsible for a comically large number of murders, and otherwise is basically like if Wolverine were bigger, blonder, way worse, and had real sharp, really unkempt fingernails instead of the hand knives. Right. I mean, as far as those murders, uh, Sabretooth's killed a girlfriend of Wolverine, and a girlfriend of Gambit, and a large number of Caliban's Morlock community. Sabretooth has also made quite a few enemies among the X-Men, having killed a number of their loved ones. That's not to say he hasn't been through his own share of trauma, though. He was severely abused by his parents, but still, I mean, maybe don't murder hundreds of people, bro. Yeah, um, there are, there are questions of scale here. After killing the mutant telepath Birdie, who might or might not have been Sabretooth's partner, he no longer had anyone to psychically calm his murderous rages. He allowed himself to be tracked and caught by the X-Men, demanding that their telepaths give him the psychic quote-unquote glow he was now missing. Professor X agreed to take Sabretooth in to treat him, choosing Victor's rehabilitation as a personal project that most of the other X-Men, especially those who had lost loved ones to Sabretooth, strongly objected to. Wolverine in particular decided that he was not going to live in the mansion while Sabretooth was around, and instead went to uh, lurk around and eat Kentucky Fried Chicken in the woods. Finally, um, as, as the universe shattered with the Emkron crystal immediately before the Age of Apocalypse, he snicked his claws into Sabretooth's brain. Since then, Sabretooth, who did not die, has been docile and almost childlike. He's being kept in the Danger Room's best holographic impression of a Disney princess forest to keep him, you know, docile and childlike. However, it's become clearer and clearer that this rehabilitation isn't working, and in fact, Professor X recently decided that it was time to give up on Sabretooth. This is news to Boom Boom, herself no stranger to violent men she wishes could be redeemed. She's been spending time with Sabretooth unbeknownst to her friends, which, as you might imagine, cannot go well. And in fact won't as it brings us to X-Force number 48, Intervention. This issue is written by Jeff Loeb, penciled by Adam Polina, inked by Mark Pennington and Joe Rubenstein, colored by Marie Javins and Derek Bellman, and lettered by Comicraft. So the ritual that Boom Boom has established is that every night she pads downstairs in her bunny slippers to bring Sabretooth a bowl of milk. Before we get any further, let's talk about those bunny slippers. They're great, they're adorable, they have very long ears, which I appreciate, even though that means they'd kind of probably get banged up a lot more. But she's wearing them over her full costume. Like, clearly she just woke up, she's very tired, she's rubbing her eyes... Like, the leggings and vest of her costume, I can maybe buy that, but she's still wearing her shin guards, elbow pads, fingerless gloves, and her thigh pouch bandolier? Does she sleep in that? I can't imagine she does. Oh, I assumed she was just very tired or had fallen asleep somewhere and then was getting up and sort of in the process of getting ready for bed. But as someone who has a pretty strict no-shoes-in-house rule, the situation of, of being, like, ridiculously fully dressed and equipped to go outside, button slippers, is, is not an unfamiliar one to me. 
I guess there was that scene in Generation X where Chamber was in his full gothy best, but in his stocking feet, as they say. I don't know who says stocking feet. They. They say stocking feet. I mean, you just did, Miles. Am I one of they? Crap. Well, fashion aside, X-Force, themselves in full uniforms, but not bunny slippers, is waiting in the kitchen. It is intervention time. And I want to talk a little bit about the art here before we get into the plot. So Adam Polina, we've mentioned, is the new regular artist of X-Force. He came on at the same time as Jeff Loeb. And I don't know how to feel about him. His style and my reaction to it actually reminds me a fair bit of when Brett Blevins took over for New Mutants. The styles are both drastic departures from what came before. They're both extremely exaggerated in terms of body language and at times even proportions. And just like with Blevins, I find that I like Polina more and more the more of his stuff I read. I find, and this may be a product of time on the book, Blevins much, much more consistent. Um, with Polina, the odds that there will be pages that I really like and pages that I really dislike in the same book are much higher. That's very true, yeah. But also remember, I mean, we've read Brett Blevins' later stuff more recently than his earlier stuff, so that could right, just exactly. be— Yeah. So that really benefits this issue, because this issue is in large part a lot of talking heads. The intervention is the main part of the plot, and that could be really visually boring in the hands of a lesser artist. But here, we do see Boom Boom, who's already a really visually animated character, being even more so. Like, she laughs at the intervention, and she looks like she's just freaking busting a gut, like this is the funniest thing she's ever seen. And when a cannonball shows up to join in, she just dives into his arms like she's uh, out of a cartoon rom-com. Polina uses a lot of graphic motifs as backgrounds, which I think is something that serves him really well here, and he does it sparingly enough that it doesn't really get old or start to feel like a cop-out. Yeah, he has these kind of, uh, I don't know, they're almost Art Nouveau geometric backgrounds, like uh, very silly stained glass windows. How would you describe those? One is, I mean, I, I, I would use it as, as I would say geometric background motifs because they vary pretty significantly. There's one I can think of that looks kind of Art Nouveau. Most of them are, are just, just geometric fill. It's pretty good, though. It adds visual interest. And again, especially in an issue that's largely talking heads, that's really important. Yeah, you described him as, as, as um, reminding you a bit of Brett Blevins, and that particular quirk, I think, uh, for me, evokes more uh, Starman era Tony Harris. Yeah, yeah, I can absolutely see that. Boom Boom is pretty sure that her boyfriend Cannonball is here to back her up. Sam! Honey, make them understand there's nothing wrong with me? I mean, they're all acting like I was on drugs or something. No. You've got to change the direction you're on. Take responsibility for your actions. Or face the consequences. Siren, who's the deputy leader of the team now that Sam has left for the X-Men, points out later that Boom Boom is basically illustrating the five stages of grief, and she absolutely is, and this is very, very much denial, and we're going to see a lot of that. I would say more of that stage than any others. So the first one of her teammates to, to speak up, they've decided in advance, is going to be Caliban, because Caliban has lost more to Sabretooth than anyone else on the team. Exactly. I mean, Sabretooth was part of the mutant massacre. He killed hundreds of Morlocks, and Caliban was a Morlock. X-Factor only took him in after most of his people were slaughtered. And we've seen that vendetta that Caliban's had for Sabretooth a number of times. Like, Caliban even went to Apocalypse and asked Apocalypse to soup him up so that he could get revenge on Sabretooth. And we've seen how it worked out pretty much every time. For this part of the intervention, X-Force has borrowed the good old holo guilt projector that we've seen in some other books. Uh, we saw Gambit use that on Sabretooth recently, and even back in Age of Apocalypse, Logan had his own version of that to show how terrible a slaughter had been. And yeah, I mean, I think that's probably a good idea. Like, if they're trying to convince Boom Boom that Sabretooth is A, dangerous, and B, irredeemable— the gigantic slaughter he perpetrated, who were the victims of whom were the family of somebody she's on a team with, that seems like a pretty good way to do it. Although, making Caliban watch it seems like a little much. 
It does, yeah. I mean, presumably they've uh, briefed him, they've all talked through it, they've done some role-playing, he's in a good shape, but we do know that he himself is sort of childlike, and a lot of that's just Jeff Loeb's writing. He didn't really used to be that way all the time, but uh, he doesn't seem too bothered. Fair enough. Boom Boom turns it around, though. I mean, Caliban himself was a freaking horseman of Apocalypse. Caliban first appeared when he kidnapped Kitty Pride, and more recently he kidnapped Jubilee. This is our second stage. This is anger. Yeah, but I also think X-Force is going about this absolutely wrong. I am, for the most part, Team Boom Boom here, because the case that they're making isn't you shouldn't be around this guy alone, and uh, you shouldn't be around this guy regularly. He's really dangerous. It's, you shouldn't be around this guy, he's irredeemably evil. And that's not really a point you can prove. At least not a point that you can prove to anyone's satisfaction, especially in, in you know, shared universe superhero comics. Well, and Boom Boom jumps right onto that fact. I mean, she points out that, you know, it's like when somebody gets sober. I mean, after all, they accepted Sunspot back onto the team after he was turned back from the Rainfire persona. Which, we still don't know what the hell was up with that. I mean, Jay, you and I know what that will eventually be revealed to have been, but at this point in the comic, Sunspot is just back on the team with very little explanation. We do learn a little bit here that Sunspot was was sort of possessed by another persona, because Warpath points out that, well, that's not the case with Sabretooth. You know, Sabretooth was just Sabretooth before. Yeah... I'm just kind of skimming the Rainfire stuff on the basis that it's all going to be retconned away soon anyhow and doesn't make any sense in the meantime. I know, I know, but we're a continuity podcast. I feel like we have to talk about continuity when it shows up just in time to shortly be overwritten. Yeah, I am curious about the original intentions for Rainfire. Oh, me too. No, we'll, we'll talk about that. But I'm also curious when exactly everybody gave up on Sabretooth, because... Like you mentioned, Professor X, who's been despairing more and more in general, uh, figured Sabretooth might be a lost cause right around the same time things got super ugly with a legacy virus. But not a lot has changed with Sabretooth. So far, he's mostly been portrayed as being legitimately childlike and innocent, at least whenever anybody's around. Well, a lot of folks had never had any hopes for this project to begin with, so I don't think gave up on is necessarily the right term there. And we're also talking about people who make these decisions relative to Professor X, who is a very, very powerful telepath who we know is sliding into some very, very dark places in the very near future. I would perfectly acceptably read this as him low-key psychic influencing everyone, or him just, you know, having generally sounded the alarm. But honestly, I don't think any of these kids trusted Sabretooth to begin with. They've talked about this. Like, they don't think that he's really in the shape he's claiming to be. They don't think he should be there regardless. Yeah, that's true. It was pretty much just Professor X who had any sort of optimism about this whole thing. And that's been the case before. I mean, when Rogue came onto the team, Xavier was the only one that supported her after what she did to Carol Danvers. So I can see Xavier thinking, well, maybe this will be the same way. Although, to be fair, Rogue had just, you know, absorbed some people and robbed some banks. She hadn't murdered hundreds of, of folks. Yeah, as a teenager under duress and at the instruction of her parents. Exactly. The comparisons that people keep on drawing to Sabretooth really bother me. Um, I mean, not, not just the ones Boom Boom does make sense given her lack of frame of reference around him. But like, the, I mean, as, as you said, the comparison to Rogue is, is, is ludicrous. Yeah, and she does bring up Magneto as well, saying, hey, he ran the freaking school for a long time. And this part, I understand it. It bugs me, but I understand it. Because Xavier says, and that was a mistake. But dude, Magneto was actually a great headmaster until everything went to hell around Inferno. Magneto was a way better headmaster than Xavier. Right, like he didn't always get along with the kids, and they super rebelled. But honestly, I think they would have super rebelled against Xavier, too. They did. And also, Xavier did really horrible stuff to them, and only some of those were the result of being possessed by a brood queen. Oh yeah, there was that whole thing from the X-Men Micronauts series that we try not to talk about. Instead, we just talk about the rocket-powered centaur that that series had. Yeah, but my point here is that no one really has complete moral high ground, and if there's any lesson to take away from here, it's that atrocities are to some extent relative. It's true. 
Shatterstar, meanwhile, is fed up with this whole damn thing. He figures, okay, if Boom Boom says she's okay, then she's okay. I mean, they just let his BFF Richter leave the team. They respected his agency, so what the hell? Yeah, I sort of assume that the Mojoverse does not generally try to deter people from diving headfirst into self-destructive behavior. Exactly, yeah. And I like that. I like that Shatterstar is not on board, that he's agreed to show up, but gets immediately frustrated. That's totally in character for him. Yeah, he's just here for the pie. So, the team puts forth an ultimatum. Boom Boom either stops seeing Sabretooth, or she's off the team, and that kicks in the next stage of grief, bargaining. So, at this point, Boom Boom proposes that maybe she can see him, like, with a chaperone to make sure she's safe. You know, someone watching from the danger room. And this, I think, is not I, not the solution they should go with, but I think, I think the direction it's moving is the appropriate one. And I actually, again, this is a point where I disagree with X-Force's choice, that it, if, if she wants to talk to him remotely with supervision, that's probably okay. It seems like part of the point that the team, and by extension the book, is making is that Boom Boom is hanging out with Sabretooth for the wrong reasons. That she's projecting her own problems onto this obsession with redeeming him. But they don't outright say so. And I don't know if it would work if they did, but I kind of feel like maybe they should. I mean, at least her teammates should, because otherwise their ultimata don't make sense, and she can counter all of them pretty effectively. Is the plural of ultimatum ultimata? I don't know, but that's how I pluralized it now, so I'm just gonna run with it. Would the best tomato in the world be an ultimato? Yes. Good. I'm glad we've established that. I want to call out Polina's art here again, because as Boom Boom is going through her various suggestions for maybe we could do this, maybe we could do this, and eventually saying, maybe I could just talk to him one last time, we have these large rectangular panels of the teammates who are talking to her, who are just disagreeing with everything she suggests. And next to those panels, we have these small circular panels of her going from very confident in the first to just almost withered and broken in the last. And it works so well just sort of tracking her mental state as the eye automatically follows that from top to bottom and follows Boom Boom's confidence from high to low. Mm. I think with Polina, I mean, I like his art, but honestly, I think his layouts are what are really grabbing me. Yeah, they're really solid, and he's using them for emotion and, and hitting emotional beats in ways that I think work especially well. Yeah. Like, I know that the Loeb Polina run is not widely liked. At least that's my understanding of it from what I've seen on the interwebs. But I gotta say, so far, while I don't always agree with the direction the book is taking, like, I kind of wish we had just gone with where Nicieza left it, so far I'm enjoying these issues. Yeah, I mean, I would I would also appreciate a writer I could like less reservedly. Okay, that's fair, but honestly, we're in the mid-90s. We, we run into that problem a lot right now, unfortunately. So, ultimately, Boom Boom doesn't get her way. She does not get to even say goodbye to Sabretooth. And in fact, she's about to quit the team. I guess that's our depression stage when Xavier himself joins in on the intervention. And that's when, as you referred to, he, he says that having Magneto as a headmaster was a mistake, which he's absolutely wrong about. And Boom Boom, she knows she's lost, but she's just desperately trying to find a way to fix this and opens up, honestly, more than I think she ever has before. You don't understand. None of you do. If you don't believe in giving somebody a second chance, no matter how horrible they've been, no matter how badly they've treated you, then I have to give up on Victor. Just like I did with my father. Or... or me. Oh. Oh man, Tabitha. Like, this is weird because it's, it's kind of a new addition to her personality. I think we've mentioned this before in, in X-Force episodes, but... Back in the day, she didn't seem to have any affection for her dad at all, and she didn't really seem to hate herself because of where she'd come from. I disagree with you pretty thoroughly. I think especially when she was traveling with the Beyonder, that was something that we really saw, if not as openly from her. I mean, it was something that she was still somewhat in denial about, but the ways that she related to the Beyonder and the ways that she related to other people, I think, I think reflected that pretty directly. 
to be fair, it has been a long time since I've read Secret Wars 2, and I haven't really um, had much impetus to revisit that overall terrible storyline. Reasonable. At least the Boom Boom parts were pretty good. I liked those parts. So despite the agreement she's made, she does go to the Danger Room control room and begs Sabretooth to tell her if they're right, and there's absolute silence and absolute darkness. No response. So stage five of grief, acceptance. Yeah, we, uh, we don't get that right now. And weirdly enough, this issue of X-Force continues directly into an issue of Uncanny X-Men, that being number 328, Precipice. It's like one weekly series with a lot of titles. Pretty much. Do you get the feeling that Marvel just assumed that everybody was buying every X-Comic at this point? Do you get the feeling that most people actually were? Yes and maybe, respectively. I think this is probably a point where they were losing a lot of readers for exactly this reason. Basically, line burnout. There were so many crossovers, and there were so many, you know, unscheduled crossovers, things that weren't officially events, that if you were only subscribing to one or two titles, you would be lost every third issue. And most of those crossovers were with X-Man. Well... The point, though, is that if you've got budget limitations, or if you only want to follow one or two books, X-Men is at this point in, in history looking like a less and less feasible place to do that. You're going to be looking at other titles, other lines, possibly, you know, other publishers. Can we just go ahead and throw out some praise for the way that that's being handled in current X continuity in the Dawn of X, Reign of X era? Because it's great. All the books are great, which, I mean, I like that part. But you can basically read whatever you feel like and still have a coherent story, and then it's just a bonus if you see all the little interactions with other books. Obviously, Ten of Swords is an exception, because it was one big story, but overall, I think it's being handled amazingly well. Yeah, I think that's a good way for it to work. And what Ten of Swords had going for it was that it was it was an event. It was scheduled, it was organized, and you had, you know, in every issue, a listing of all of the issues in order, so you knew which ones to pick up if you wanted to follow the event, and you knew when the crossover would be over. Exactly. So if you wanted to just skip the whole thing, you totally could as well. I, Which is, is something I feel like should should also be an option. I mean, I think, I think it's probably the best way to approach doing something like that if you're going to do it. So are we willing to officially state that the current era of X-Men is perhaps better organized than 1996 X-Men? I think most things are better organized than 1996 X-Men. This issue of 1996 Uncanny X-Men, number 328, is written by Scott Lobdell, penciled by Joe Matarera, inked by Tim Townsend, colored by Steve Bucolato, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft. And this Joe Matarera art, like, I feel like he's going Super Saiyan in this era. Like, I didn't think I would ever be able to describe early Joe Mad art as restrained, but compared to where he's going with this, it kind of was. After that question we got in our holiday special, I really just, I can't see his art without going straight to Tom of Finland. <laughs> Legit. I just think about Gambit brooding in shorts on a roof. Well, we don't have any shorts on a roof this time. At least none picture. There may be some going on that are, you know, just out of panel. Yeah, read between the panels, gentle listeners. But, uh, yeah, we do mostly get giant, giant Sabretooth. Now, if you're paying way closer attention than I would expect you to, you might notice that we have not yet covered Uncanny number 327, and here we are doing 328. We're going to cover that later. It doesn't tie in at all, and we wanted to keep all the Sabretooth stuff together. Yeah, that's the same reason that we skipped some of the interstitial stuff in the X-Force issue we just talked about. Exactly. The opening narration to this issue does not bury the lead. Victor Creed is gone. Only Sabretooth remains. Professor X is calmly, sadly explaining to Victor why they're giving up on his rehabilitation. And that childlike Victor that we've seen, that young Disney princess Victor we've seen in the Disney Danger Room, is gone. Like, between issues, he has just become the old Sabretooth. He has become this snarling, monstrous beast who's being a total dick to everybody around him and keeps talking about killing. Well, assuming he was ever actually those other things in the first place. Because what's heavily implied here, and what was heavily implied previously, was that he was in the process of reverting back to this, and he was at least to some extent faking that. I I mean, yeah, that does seem to be the direction continuity has gone as of this story. I still really like the idea that maybe he would have been redeemable until Gambit was such a dick to him that he reawakened the dark parts inside Sabretooth. I think that would have been a more compelling story, honestly. Mm, 
I think they would have had to do stuff that led up to that differently for it to sell effectively. That may be true. And also there's just the fact that, like we were talking about, the books don't really line up with each other. They're not very well organized story-wise in addition to continuity-wise. And I think they suffer here. Like, it kind of reminds me of when John Byrne really wanted Magneto to go back to being a villain in the 80s, and Claremont really didn't want him to. We had John Byrne portraying Magneto as this mustache-twirling, dastardly evildoer, and then Claremont writing him as basically saying, okay, so I know I look really evil, but it's all part of the strategy to help mutants, so it's fine. That bothers me when that happens, and I don't know if it's happening here. Certainly not to that same degree, but... I mean, that one struck me as the left hand and right hand in direct opposition. This definitely feels more like the left hand not knowing what the right hand is doing and vice versa. Or just not caring. I don't know. But this Sabretooth, I do appreciate that if he's going to have this drastic shift back to his old personality, that Joe Mad draws him as intimidating as fuck. They need the most nonsensical technological manacles and muzzle to keep this guy from ripping everybody apart. But you kind of buy it because he looks that threatening and the art is that dynamic. Like, he looks like he's about to break out of not only his armor, but possibly also the page and attack you, the reader, personally. Oh, I completely agree. Joe Matarera, I mean, his art's not realistic. That's not the point of his art, but his art really conveys just the sheer energy of everything inside it. I mean, we've said this before, and it's a drum I'll beat pretty much till my arms fall off, but especially when it comes to comics, realistic and good are not necessarily a one-to-one equation, and in fact, frequently aren't. Like, the most photorealistic comic art tends to be the most stiff and least narratively effective. Yeah, I mean, not always, but I will agree, usually. Just like Boom Boom did, Sabretooth brings up the Magneto parallel. I mean, he says that Magneto did what he wanted, I do what I want. So we're both the same. Xavier will hear none of this. All that was evil about Magneto was forged during his hellish youth as a prisoner in the death camps. Helpless as his family was murdered simply for who they were. I don't agree with his methods, but I understand why he has done what he's done. But you? You're an... But me what? I'm an animal? Say it, Professor. Come on! Xavier's solution to this, you'd think might be, you know, killing Sabretooth or psychically lobotomizing him, but no. No, Professor Xavier decides that the best option is to call... The beacon of responsibility that is Valerie Cooper. Val Cooper has never made any bad decisions involve ha- involving having control over supervillains. Not even six times. Why would you call Val Cooper for this? Like, on the list of people you would assume can effectively contain Sabretooth, and will bother to do so if given him, I would put her somewhere below, like, the power pack. So here's the way I look at it. Xavier wants to turn Sabretooth over to the government to answer for his crimes in, like, a legal direction and then be incarcerated the way that the government would. Like, okay, if he's giving up on Sabretooth, I I get that. That's what you do with supervillains. You just don't, you know, sign your friendly neighborhood Spider-Man unless you're your friendly neighborhood Spider-Man on the captured supervillains. And when it comes to liaisons between the human and mutant communities, you basically have two options. You have Val Cooper and you have Henry Peter fucking Gyrich. No! No, because you're Professor Xavier and you know goddamn everybody. You can call the Fantastic Four and have them go through their liaisons. Well, that's a really good point. And I guess there's always Fred Duncan at the FBI, but he may or may not have died, which was what convinced Carl the Exterminator to be a jerk. My, my point here is that even assuming that Val has the technology and wherewithal to successfully incarcerate Sabretooth, which is really questionable... Who the hell trusts Valerie Cooper? Yeah, there was that whole Freedom Force thing and that whole lots of other things. And I mean, it's not in the issues we're covering, but as soon as Val gets her hands on him, like, she just slaps a shot collar on him and puts him in X-Factor. That's our Valerie. Well, Jean, who's been watching this whole uh, deliverance of judgment with Cyclops and Bishop shows the other two what made Xavier decide. 
So you know how we mentioned that in the danger room where Sabretooth had been kept, they'd used holograms to turn it into Disney Princess Land? Apparently, when Jean Psy scanned Sabretooth at one point, she saw this Princess Land through his eyes, which consisted of a bunch of monstrous animals viciously slaughtering he- each other. So, yeah, apparently he had at least recently just been faking that he was no longer a frothing-at-the-mouth happy murderer. Hard disagree. I want to go back and look at that panel, but from what I recall, it's an evil-looking squirrel, like, eating the partly rotted remains of an evil-looking deer in a dark, swampy environment. Yeah, but it's like a really evil-looking squirrel. That squirrel is so evil. Yeah, but, like, this is this is a landscape that I would think, or a, a mental image that I would think I would think would indicate, like, really severe depression and maybe some delusions, not, you know, unbridled evil. Well, right, but uh, if the panel had zoomed in, you would see that the squirrel was wearing a little name tag that said, my name is Victor Creed, and I see myself as a squirrel, and I really want to slaughter bad dogs. That that seems like it would be a step forward for him. Yeah, yeah, maybe. Well, regardless, Bishop is horrified by this and is convinced they need to end Sabretooth to prevent anyone else from getting killed. They need to put him down like a mad dog. But Cyclops got a Cyclops. That mad dog is a human being, Bishop. We kill him because we don't want him around? Because we fear him? Because he's everything we abhor? Who's next? Do we kill Magneto? Sinister? Then who? Toad? Do we kill anyone who disagrees with the way we think mutants should live? Pull that trigger and the killing doesn't stop. Ever. And Bishop, who perhaps forgot that Cyclops did kill Sinister once and recently talked about killing him as well, backs down. He apologizes. He's been distracted by all of these impossible Age of Apocalypse memories that he doesn't understand, and he's been on edge. And yeah, this is the path he's chosen. To not kill, to go along with the X-Men, to be the person he wants to be. And as Gene and Scott resolve privately once he's left. If anyone is going to be sympathetic to my head is full of way more memories than should chronologically fit in there, it's going to be the two of them. Exactly, because they spent, what was it, 12 years in the far future in the adventures of Cyclops and Phoenix? Yep. They point out to each other, well, maybe the reason that we're doing better than Bishop is that we had each other and he was alone. And that actually hit me. Like, it's just a little throwaway line, but I'd never really thought about just the magnitude of Bishop's solitude for the many, 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 many years he was alone in the Age of Apocalypse before the plot proper started. Like, he was there for decades, not understanding what was real and what wasn't, not able to trust anybody, and somehow he came through that vaguely functional? God damn, Lucas. Yeah, yeah, what Bishop has been through, there's, I don't think there's really anything comparable that anyone on the team has experienced, but this is probably as close as they can get. The only thing I can think of, which also involves time travel and alternate dimensions, was when Rachel Summers was thrown into the time stream to save Britannic for some reason, and spent, like, thousands and thousands of years there before she turned up at her destination. And then when her timeline got undone, she spent even longer and ended up in the end of time before she met up with Cable in a Cable story— And she's basically fine. But then again, this is Rachel Summers, the only person who was ever able to bond with the Phoenix Force and not have it go nuclear. She is not basically fine, Miles. Okay, she's basically fine for somebody who has spent millennia upon millennia lost in the time stream. How is that? She's in better shape than she could be considering how long she spent lost in the time stream, but... She was she was not in great shape coming out of that, and she's someone whose who's base, baseline level of traumatized is pretty high to begin with, which actually, honestly, might be a factor in that later resilience. Oh, man. So if your baseline is low enough, then you just deal? That, that makes a lot of sense, actually. Yeah, it's astonishing how far people can normalize stuff when they've had to. Legit. Well, Victor's next visitor is, in fact... Boom Boom. And this time, she doesn't just hope he responds, she shows up right in his face. She's not on her own. Psylocke is watching from the control booth, but Boom Boom is physically there, in with him. And she confronts him. 
lied to me. And Sabretooth just mocks her, saying that she failed to save him like she failed to save her loser dad, and that she's a failure, and that she's not fooling anybody, that even Cannonball would leave her if he knew what she used to be. Victor knows exactly what to do to push her buttons. And as we know, Boom Boom is perhaps not the most well-composed, evenly decision-making person who is on an X-team. Well, what Boom Boom does when she gets pushed hard enough is use her powers, and that's what she does now. She sets a time bomb, throws it at Victor, and does exactly what he was counting on, which is to blow him out of his bonds. And he gets mostly blown up too, but at this point in the 90s, healing factors are god mode, so he's pretty much fine. I gotta say, I completely buy Boom Boom reacting this way. And that doesn't mean that I think she's a bad character, but she's not a mature character. She's not good at thinking things through, and she acknowledges her emotions so seldom that she has, like, no control over them. Yeah. Psylocke dives in to save Boom Boom, because this is not gonna go well. And both she and Sabretooth remember the last time they danced this dance, which was way back in Uncanny number 213. Do you remember that one? I do. That was back when she was in her original body, wasn't it? That was the first time we saw just how tough Betsy could be. Facing a threat of this immediacy, this level of magnitude. We'd seen her be a badass before, but Sabretooth. She survived a physical confrontation with Sabretooth. And that was, I think, specifically the thing that inspired her to switch to the princess armor, wasn't it? I think she got that a little bit later, but that was definitely the turning point where she officially became an X-Man. So, at this point, she's in a new body. She is less armored, much less armored. But she's got, you know, the same psychic power she did before, and she's a much, much stronger physical fighter. So it's surprising that she's really not able to hold her own against Sabretooth here. I was thinking about that, because it is weird. Sabretooth... <sighs> Betsy stood up to him before even without being a ninja ass-kicker, and now she totally is. At the same time, something we seem to be seeing is that Sabretooth has just gotten more and more and more intimidating in the 90s. And that made me think about something Claremont, at least, uh, is said to have said, which was that the Sabretooth uh, that the Power Pack took out, for instance, was just one of Sinister's clones. That the real Sabretooth, the one from, say, Wolverine number 10, or maybe even here, was not there at the time. So maybe the one that Betsy fought wasn't the real one? I don't know, that's the thing. We have no evidence in any direction. We just have to attempt to justify the reason that she gets badly beaten very quickly. Well, there's another reason too, which is she's counting on her telepathy, which is how she was able to take him down before. And what we learn in this fight is that whatever Wolverine did to him when he stabbed his his claws through Sabretooth's head, apparently took out the part of the brain that is vulnerable to telepaths. Ah, the effects of a clawbotomy. I guess. So yeah, ever, ever since this, people haven't really been able to get fully into his mind, and in this case, she is not able to use her psychic knife on him. Well, this part, I'm not going to say it makes sense, but they at least attempt to justify it. Before, Sabretooth needed the glow. He needed just a wash of telepathy to calm him down and make him feel human again, basically. And now he doesn't need that. Now that doesn't do anything for him. So that's the explanation we're given. I don't think it makes any goddamn sense, because honestly, with a healing factor as powerful as his, a claw through the brain, if that didn't kill him, he should pretty much fully bounce back from it. That said, given his... Given his strength, given his relative invulnerability, it could be that this isn't something in his brain that's broken. This is something in his brain that was off before that healed correctly after what Wolverine did. Yeah, breaking the arm again to reset it so it heals right. You know, that kind of makes sense. And regardless, he just rips Betsy open. And I like the way Matarera shows this. We just see the shadow of Sabretooth's raised claw imposed over Boom Boom's body who's pressed against the wall, and then there's a shrrrp, and blood splatters all over Boom Boom's face. We don't actually see the gore, and I think it's way more effective for that. Agreed. We do get a brief description. The, the entirety of the description is nearly eviscerated. And that's the cliffhanger we leave off on. We leave off on the cliffhanger of, of Boom Boom crying, holding Betsy in a pool of blood. And 
I'm going to sound like such an asshole here. It bothers me so much when characters who have been on combat teams for years don't know or apply basic first aid in emergencies. Eh, I'll do a mild no prize by saying Boom Boom is just super freaked out after all this, but yes, good point, good point. Cable taught you better than that, kid. So, this storyline is wrapped up in a double-length issue. This is the Sabretooth Special Number 1, titled In the Red Zone. It's written by Fabian Nicesa. Yes! Penciled by Gary Frank, inked by John Holdridge and Mark McKenna, and colored by Dana Morshead, with letters by Richard Starkings and Comicraft. I guess it makes sense that Nicieza is back even after pretty much leaving Marvel. I mean, this was mostly his storyline, so it's kind of cool that he gets to wrap it up. I like the art. I like the art a lot. Gary Frank's style is way more realistic, and that fits here because it's less just in-your-face character interaction, and it's more of a, a gritty thriller. It's Sabretooth in the world and interacting a lot more with more characters, less sort of in the confines of the Xavier Mansion, where it makes sense for him to be outsized in proportion to his relative significance. Well said. There's also, of course, a shiny gatefold cover. That's right. If Marvel can milk more money out of you in the 90s, they will. And you'll like it because shiny things are awesome. So Sabretooth spends this issue pretty much attempting to commit suicide by X-Men, and at least somewhat in denial about it. Yeah, like he's on the run, but... It's clear that if he were actually being goal-oriented and efficient, he probably could have gotten away. Yeah, he's setting what sort of look like or are being framed as traps for the team, but are actually more just him setting up confrontations with them. And the first hint we get that this is going on is actually in, in the opening narration. It's been only five hours since Creed escaped Xavier's mansion. Five hours of holding back suppressing the lust to kill that boils within. Which is interesting, because the captioning also talks about how Sabretooth no longer needs to kill to be okay. He doesn't need the glow to quiet that down. He's now choosing to kill. And there's a quote later in the narration that I think sums that up pretty well. The only thing Xavier accomplished was to stoke the hatred inside you, for those who had everything you didn't. But... What I think is significant about the first one is that he's specifically trying to suppress that urge, and there's no reason for him to do that if the circumstances are actually what he spins them as in his head and when he's talking to the X-Men. He's out, he's escaped, he's free, he can do whatever he wants, and what he wants is to, you know, is to make a mess and is to hurt people. Okay, so you're saying we have a literally unreliable literal narrator with that opening quote. No, I think the opening quote is accurate. I think that Sabretooth is an unreliable narrator. Check. So, it's unclear whether his endgame here is for the X-Men to stop him so that he'll be stopped, or to kill him because that'll prove that they're at least somewhat like him. A very Joker, if that's the case. Yeah, honestly, Sabretooth does it less elegantly but also much less irritatingly. <laughs> Fair enough. Note that we're Marvel fans. Well, the, the thing with... I, okay, there are a lot of things with the Joker. But the, the Joker is so elaborate and ridiculous and personally focused when he does stuff like this. It's not just about threatening, you know, a general ethos or an ideal. It's about specifically fucking with Batman and nobody else. Yeah, I guess Sabretooth's a little more general about the whole thing. Yeah, like, Sabretooth has issues with the X-Men for myriad and obvious reasons, but he's he's not, like, this This isn't him being like, I'm gonna take apart Xavier's dream from the inside out, you know, and peel it, peel, peel its layers away like an onion skin, leaving nothing but the quivering, vulnerable core. I don't, I don't know how onions work. <laughs> how do onions work? They're bulbs. No, I, I know how onions work. I, they, they're not actually, they don't quiver, usually. Maybe our next talk talk can be about onions. We have a lot to learn about onions. Onions are great. No, I, I do actually know a fair amount about onions. <laughs> I don't know why I said that. Well, anyway, we've talked about villains, we've talked about onions, let's talk about heroes. Because it's kind of interesting who's after Sabretooth. The three genders. Villain, onion, and hero. Exactly. So, the first 
the first um, X Men who who comes after after Creed is of course and always Caliban. Um, he is he is working as a tracker because while Jean is coordinating the hunt, she can't track Sabretooth directly because again, Wolverine stabbed him straight in the interacting with psychic powers. That goes really poorly, and man, this is just one fight after another after another in sewers that Caliban and Sabretooth have had. Caliban, of course, is not very bright, so he's really vulnerable to Sabretooth's manipulation, and that distracts him enough for him to lose the fight. But the other heroes are the original five X-Men. Yeah. So one of the things that I was thinking about throughout this issue is that this, this Sabretooth special number one does a much, much better job of evoking and reflecting and going back to the mutant massacre than any of the stuff that directly references its anniversary did. I completely agree, and I think part of that is that here we have that era's X-Factor going after one of the Marauders. It's so direct, and those are also characters that have this very well-defined dynamic, and Nicieza's take on their interactions really, really evokes Simonson's X-Factor in the best ways. I love it. God, I love his Beast so much. Right, yeah, Beast is all jovial, but also has just this intense core of emotion, and in this case, fury. So, speaking of Fury, Sabretooth, the, the first of, of the O5 that Sabretooth catches up with are Cyclops and Iceman, who've gone to stake out and search Sabretooth's apartment. But he throws himself out the window rather than be captured, then takes a hostage to get him, himself safely into an uptown six. And I just, it's utterly irrelevant, but I really appreciate it when a writer knows the subway system well enough to name specific lines. And here, it's not only the line, but they're, they're going through stops and where he might emerge. Oh, that's really cool. What's also really cool, you'll see what I'm doing with that, is some Iceman stuff. At one point, Iceman is all, you know, bulked up the way he tends to be in this era, just covered in this big, like, monstrous ice body. Sabretooth shatters Iceman's arm, and underneath, like, the giant beefy ice arm, we see his normal-sized icy hand, which is really neat. So one of the things that you you mention in the notes here that I think is really interesting is that these characters are all linked in a psychic network. Gene is basically being a switchboard connecting them. And as a result of that, we have multiple pe- multiple disembodied thoughts. And like it's cool the way they do it because there's an Adam X the Extreme style drop shadow under each thought bubble that is supposed to tell us, you know, who is thinking that thought bubble. But there are problems. For starts, Xavier and Jean each have different shades of orange, which are kind of too similar, and Jean's darker orange is too similar to Scott's red, and it's the two of them talking to each other most of the time. But the worst part is, there's at least one miscolored drop shadow, and that just throws everything into utter chaos, because then you just don't know what you can trust anymore. Like, you try to read the character's vocal styles to figure out what's going there, but then you start to wonder, well, how well does Nestieza know these characters' vocal tics, especially when he's evoking Louis Simonson-era X-Factor, and then you just start getting twisted up more and more and more, and then you're reminded of those freaking leprechauns, and then it's all over. So Beast manages to intercept Sabretooth in the train, uh, but Sabretooth is able to escape once again, and this time takes to the rooftops, where Archangel is waiting for him, specifically, uh, as as the narration says, like a hawk spiraling over its prey. <laughs> like a hawk? Yeah, we know the truth. And as they fight, Sabretooth and Archangel, who have fought before, again, an X-Factor, there was a three-way fight with them and Caliban, Sabretooth rips out most of one of Archangel's wings, and there's some kind of blood-like substance everywhere, and flechettes are just on the ground scattered below, and it's super gross and painful-looking. I should add, Miles says blood-like substance not because it's colored wrong or something, but because Sabretooth tastes it and specifically says it's not even quite real blood. Which makes sense, because Archangel got super messed up by Apocalypse when Apocalypse gave Archangel those new wings, and, like, who knows what's flesh and what's metal and what's not. Honestly, I'm surprised it's not just straight-up radiator fluid. Maybe it is. Maybe it's antifreeze. That said, this is also leading into a plotline that's coming up where Warren's featherwings start coming back, so that's probably related as well. To go back to the art again, as we have with many of these issues, there's a really nice page as Archangel steers both himself and Sabretooth into a water tower, 
as we see inside the building that the water tower is on top of, and there's this middle-aged couple who have clearly been starting to undress each other and are now freaking out as they look up to see what made that noise. Like, the woman is closing her shirt in panic. It's... What I like about it, and something that I think Gary Frank does well multiple times in this issue, is implying little stories without needing to spend time on telling them. It makes the world feel much more real, which for a thriller-style chase scene like this issue, I think really serves it. I love that, and that's that's a terrific way to get a lot of mileage out of fairly simple backgrounds and not, not necessarily needing to draw a huge number of figures in them to give the sense of a really populated city. Exactly, yeah. Just everybody having their own little stories going on while, you know, the big scary sharp man is fighting all the strange people. So this is the point where, for me, it, it's it's very, very directly and deliberately a mutant massacre, parallel and, and, and echo, um, because Bobby's able to get there in time to catch Warren by freezing the water tower. And there's an image of War- Warren suspended in ice in pretty much with, with his wings in pieces in pretty much exactly the position they found him crucified in the sewers during the mutant massacre. And this time I think it's even more Christ-like. Like, Warren even has his knees together and his legs turned to one side the way you often see in uh, crucifix images. I don't know if that means anything, but it jumped out at me. They eventually work out what Sabretooth is planning, or appearing to plan, and he's, 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 he's leading them to believe that he's trying to catch a train to Boston and kill the kids at the Massachusetts Academy. Generation X, yeah. And I say I say leading them to believe because, again, this is a situation where clearly he could probably get away with it, but he's going just a little bit too slow and he's kind of setting himself up to be intercepted. And intercepted he is at Grand Central Station, specifically by Gene, and I love this narrative callback here. He is a firecracker. She is an atom bomb. And he lit the fuse. We've seen multiple times that Gene is the only X-Man that Sabretooth respects. That's not how atom bombs work. Well, okay, fair point, fair point. But nonetheless, it's a cool callback, and I do like that it's Gene that takes him down. It's Gene that just utterly overpowers him. Yeah, absolutely. Cyclops confronts Sabretooth with the truth, that Creed is pretty clearly trying to get them to kill him, and is able to knock Sabretooth out, but then a bunch of cops show up, and Sabretooth regains consciousness just enough to grab one of their guns and point it at himself, and they see him as grabbing the gun, and a whole bunch of them shoot him. And in fact, one of them even pronounces him dead on the scene. And then Val Cooper takes him away after a surprisingly diplomatic speech, uh, and she is going to, she's nominally, you know, taking him to get medical treatment or something. But again, what she's actually going to do is slap a shot collar on him and put him on X-Factor because nobody ever learns anything. I kind of wish they'd left him dead for longer because the issue of X-Factor that he first shows up in as really being alive came out literally the month after this. Well, I mean, he's not going to be dead very long regardless. I guess that's true. So that's pretty much the end of the Sabretooth and the Mansion plotline, and it was a plotline that overall I personally wasn't a big fan of. I thought it had some cool moments. This is a pretty decent way to wrap it up. Yeah. I think they they basically had two, well, three choices at the end of this, which were to do something like they did here, to have Sabretooth be effectively rehabilitated, or to kill him. Yeah. And uh, this is probably the most interesting of those, and we've certainly seen the others happen at various points. I mean, God, how many times has Sabretooth crossed the line between hero and villain and back again? I mean, I would I would say it's it's the revolving door that he pretty much lives in, but then there's also the revolving door of the, the X-Mansion basement, so... Pretty much. I think the time that's been most compelling was actually after Axis slash Sixus, when he, due to a dumb magical spell, became a good guy, and was try- sort of grappling with how that could work for somebody with his awful, awful past. That was in, I believe, the Weapon X series, and it was uh, pretty good, actually. Yeah, that was pretty genuinely interesting. Yeah, Weapon X Volume 2, 3, 4? Who even knows anymore? There have been a lot of them. There are also a lot of listeners, and they've got questions. We're just going to do—usually we do a couple questions an episode. We're just going to do one tonight because it's a doozy. An anonymous listener asks on Tumblr, 
if the Shi'ar are supposed to have arisen from an avian lineage, why do Lalandra and Deathbird appear to be drawn with mammalian breasts? And how, did, and how does Shi'ar reproduction work? We know they are born from eggs, as referenced here and in the person of Zandra, but are they routinely created in a test tube scenario? Is this why they keep all the eggs in one location? Did I miss a clear explanation somewhere? Oh boy, so here's the thing. And I think we start probably more than half of our questions with this phrase. It's inconsistent. So, for most of the comics they've appeared in, the Shi'ar have been shown as a species that gets pregnant and gives live birth. The best example I can think of, at least the most prominent one, is in Mark Guggenheim's Adjectiveless X-Men run, Deathbird is pregnant, and there are weird, like, monster baby things going on in the brooder there. The thing is, I was trying to think of other examples of clearly pregnant Shi'ar, or Shi'ar who have clearly given birth, and... I don't know how many there are. That's the main one I could think of. And at the same time, we also know that Deathbird herself isn't a standard Shi'ar. She's a genetic throwback, which is why she has wings. So maybe there's something special about her. The thing is, though, if, if being a genetic throwback makes her more avian, that would make her less likely to give life birth, wouldn't it? You would think, yeah, unless it's a weird platypus situation where everything's up in the air. But yeah, later in uh, specifically the Mr. and Mrs. X series, which is a great series, listeners, if you haven't read it, it's a wonderful Rogan Gambit series, can't recommend it highly enough. But in that, we do see some Shi'ar children being hatched from eggs, including the aforementioned Xandra. From what I can tell, and from what the internet can tell me, this seems to be a subset of Shi'ar children. It's, I don't think it's the default. The impression I get is that most Shi'ar do conceive and give birth to their children the standard mammalian way. But some are born in eggs and like sort of test tube laboratories, and many of them are raised kind of collectively by the society to become good Shi'ar citizens. It's ambiguous and it's unclear. And I love Mr. and Mrs. X, but I almost wonder if that was just a straight up inconsistency as much as I thought it was a cool inconsistency. I don't know. We should ask Kelly sometime. Here's what makes me think, though, that the mammalian style of reproduction is standard for the Shi'ar. We have a number of half-Shi'ar, half-other mammalian species examples. Lifeguard and Slipstream, remember them from Extreme X-Men? Eh? Eh? Boy, do I. They're half-human and half-Shi'ar. And then Bishop and Deathbird had a kid in X-Men The End. Although, again, is Deathbird normal? We don't know. Also, Adam freaking X, although, wait, he was aged in a test tube. Was he born in a test tube? I'm trying to remember. Unclear, and I'm not sure if he knew. There's also this whole group of Shi'ar mephitosoid hybrids, the mephitosoids are Hepzibah's species, called the Jothche. Like, they're this whole giant group, and those skunk people do seem to be pretty mammalian. But again, this raises the question of, of whether these are, these are things that are occurring, occurring naturally or occurring without, without major intervention, or if there's basically a Shi'ar Mr. Sinister out there. Oh man, he'd be even more fabulous. You've seen the way the Shi'ar dress? Yeah, yeah. That would be amazing. So, again, it's inconsistent. I don't know. The evidence that I can find makes me think that most of the time it's mammal style, which means that female Shi'ar having breasts is probably vaguely reasonable. But, uh, maybe not. I'm, I'm gonna, gonna cynically cut through all of the continuity and say that the answer to the why are they drawn with mammalian breasts question is is that basically, traditionally in science fiction and fantasy art, if a character is identified as female in any way, someone will slap boobs on them. Yeah, and if they're cartoony enough that you can't do that, they'll have those giant eyelashes. But like, seriously, th think about the, the fact that there is an entire art genre of sexy robots. There is no reason for a robot to have breasts. There is sometimes, you've talked about it before yourself, Danger from X-Men. She specifically tries to look female because she's going after Xavier about his poor treatment of women. Right, right. Okay, so that makes sense in context. But like, anyway, the point is, are like, are like sexy lizard ladies with breasts, which makes even less sense. The, the point is, artists, and especially dude artists, will just put tits on anything. Tits on anything. The superhero comic story. Everything. All of that said, of course, being female and having breasts are by no means necessarily linked. Yeah, I mean, and especially if you're, like, a bird person from space. Or, oh, actually, you know, for a really, really good 
really different take on that. I know I recommend Finder a lot. I'm going to recommend Finder again. Oh yeah, agreed. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm talking about this flippantly with a degree of shorthand that involves kind of radical gender essentialism and sexual dimorphism because that tends to be what's drawn, not because it's what's, you know, real, because obviously it's not, as we know, the three genders are heroes, villains, and what was it? Onions. Onions, yes. Heroes, villains, and onions. We're a fully listener-supported podcast, and certain levels of support come with on-air acknowledgement from various fictional characters and concepts. This time, once again, it is the angry Claremontian onion. I mean, narrator. Look at you, Will. Stuck in the same ruts. And the harder you push, the deeper you dig yourself in. When will you learn that you're not the infamous Jamie Wagner? And that really, nobody should want to be. And with that... Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in New Fairfield, Connecticut, in exile from Forest Hills, New York, and Portland, Oregon, and produced by Matt Hunter, who also arranged our theme music. You can find more of Matt's work at moon-talk.bandcamp.com. New episodes come out most Sundays on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for visual companions to every episode. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Next week, we're headed to the Clone Zone. As Joseph makes his debut in the pages of X-Men. X-Men.